Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the New Testament book of the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 20th chapter, studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. And once you make your way to Luke chapter 20, just hold your place there and then turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 is where we're going to begin reading this morning in just a moment. You remember the context of Luke chapter 20. It is the week of Jesus' crucifixion. He's traveled with his disciples to Jerusalem, the holy city, to complete his stated mission, which was to seek and save the lost. And the way that God in his sovereignty has chosen to do that is through what we call substitutionary atonement. That Jesus, the perfect righteous one, would die in the place of sinners such as us. It's also Passover week. And so the city of Jerusalem was filled to capacity. Perhaps as many as 2 million people were there. People were mingling about everywhere. The Pharisees had already plotted to kill Jesus. They had planned to do that after everyone had gone back home after Passover was over. Uh, but Jesus took control of the situation. He, he entered through the eastern gate of the city as a triumphal king riding the foal of a donkey. People laid down branches in his path and their own coats and sang his praises, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they cried. And then he cleared out the temple of those uh, wicked money changers and sellers. And he refused, of course, as we saw last week, to answer the Pharisees' question about his authority. And so today we come to, to the coup de grace. Jesus is going to put any doubt away that uh, the Pharisees were going to put him to death. Now, this parable is told to the people who were mingling about there in the temple square, but it is clearly directed to the religious leaders who were plotting against Jesus. And once he finishes this parable, any doubt about having to get rid of Jesus was erased from their minds. Now, this parable is an adaptation of an Old Testament parable told by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5. So we're going to read that parable first. So, so the context of Isaiah chapter 5 is very similar. God has chosen, of course, Abraham out of all of the people of the earth while he was uh, worshiping, we presume, pagan deities down in Ur of the Chaldees. And he told him he was going to go to a place that I've prepared and I will show you. And when he got there, he protected him from famine and from his enemies. Um, he delivered them in every uh, opportunity. And ultimately... He defeated their enemies. Of course, he protected them at times uh, down in Egypt um, from uh, drought and famine and ultimately brought them through Moses and Joshua into the promised land. And the scripture says he gave them fields that they did not plant and houses that they did not build. So how does the nation of Israel respond to such mercy and kindness from the Lord? Well, Isaiah tells us. In a parable, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read it now. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes. 
but it only produced worthless ones. And now the inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judged between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled upon. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. And so in that parable, the prophet Isaiah speaking for the Lord describes God's love and mercy and protection for hundreds of years for the nation of Israel. He says, I put them on a fertile hill. That is, they had every opportunity to prosper. He removed its stones. I take that to be those enemies that inhabited the promised land. He defeated them through warfare. He planted them with a choicest vine. That is that they were a wonderful and a strong and an intelligent people. He put a tower in the midst of this vineyard. I take that to be the holy city of Jerusalem and a wine vat in it, which perhaps means the sacrificial system. And, and verses three and four are really what we want to concentrate on. The Lord says, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done for? That is, God gave them every opportunity to be prosperous and to please him. All he expected in return was that they would produce good grapes. That is righteousness and justice. But instead, it says that they produced worthless grapes. In the Hebrew, it's a play on words. These little smelly, dried up, shriveled up grapes are called bu'ushin in the Hebrew, worth nothing but to be cast out. This is a parable, my friends, of stewardship. And stewardship is one of the great themes of the Bible. A steward is a manager, one who manages property rightfully belonging to another. And since God is our creator, as we saw in the last few weeks, has sovereign authority over all of his creation, we as his creatures are held accountable by him. And in large degree, based on the blessings we receive. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, to whom much is given, much is required. And so the prophet Isaiah lists the manifold blessings and advantages that they have for being God's people. And so much is going to be required of them. The expectation is though simple, good grapes, righteousness and, and justice. Now this parable here in Isaiah was written in the eighth century BC. That is 800 years before Christ came to earth. And God, of course, ultimately judged those people that Isaiah wrote this originally to through the Babylonian captivity. Their enemies, the Babylonians, came in from the north and took many of their best and brightest off to be captive. Now, eventually the Lord allowed a remnant to come back through Nehemiah, rebuilt the walls of the city. And how Jesus is 800 years later in his parable back in Luke chapter 20, if you want to go back there now, is declaring to the religious leaders that they are no better than their ancestors. That is, they haven't learned a thing from what happened to their ancestors 800 years earlier. Those ancestors who killed the prophet and stoned those that were sent to them, Jesus said. In fact, their situation, I take it, is even worse. And so let's read Jesus' adaptation 
of Isaiah chapter five, when he speaks a parable of the vine growers in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse nine. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him, sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send a third and this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of, of this, his inerrant word. Now I often remind us that the Bible is God's story. So as we look at this passage or any other, the first question should be, what does it teach us about God? Well, the obvious answer in this parable is that God is incredibly patient and long suffering with people. That's our first point on your outline, the long suffering landowner. Now in many of Jesus parables, uh, he uses the genre, the imagery of agriculture. And here's another example of that. Uh, it's of a landowner who has a fertile field and he rents out this field to vine growers, those that plant and nurture grapes. Now this was often how agriculture worked in that day and up until very recently in our own world. Uh, at the end of the growing season when the crops were harvested and sold, uh, the owner got a share of the profits and the vine growers got a share of the profits even though they didn't technically own the land. So in this parable, God is obviously the landowner because he owns everything. He has authority over all of his creation. He planted the vineyard. He put the vine growers in charge and we take that to be these religious leaders that Jesus is rebuking. They were to there to nurture and to help and to lead the people into understanding God's word. And when it was time to settle up, that is harvest time, he sent one of his servants. And I take that to be one of his prophets. And how did they treat him, these renters, these tenant farmers? Well, verse 10 says, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine grower so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him, sent him away empty handed of, of all the nerve. They had obviously signed a contract that when the time came, uh, they were going to have to settle up with the owner. And so when his servant was sent to do that, rather than giving him his portion of the produce or of the profits, they beat him and send him away empty handed. Well, that would have been enough for almost anyone to file charges, have these wicked tenants evicted and someone else put in their place. But this landowner is different than the average person. He's incredibly merciful and patient. And so what does he do? Verse 11 says he sent another slave. And how do they treat him? He proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. Well, surely, that will be enough for the landowner 
to press charges or to physically have these people removed or, or else thrown in prison. This landowner is incredibly patient. He, he, in verse 12, sends a third servant, proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. How incredibly patient and merciful and long-suffering is our Lord. The Bible says he's slow to anger and full of mercy. This is his nature. So finally, what does he do? Well, he says, I'll send my son. He says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, remember, this is a metaphor, a parable. This, we are not to take from this that, that God didn't know what was going to happen. All of this is part of his foreordained plan. But from a human perspective, he's giving us some handles that we can understand his mercy. So he sends his beloved son. Now, at this point in the story, the parable shifts from the merciful landowner to the treacherous tenants. Now, a tenant... A renter is by nature temporary and therefore easily replaceable. Now, this is good to remember when we think of our own service to the Lord, whether you're a pastor or Sunday school teacher or a deacon or serve the Lord with your, your spiritual gifts. As the president of Southwestern Seminary often says, when I hear him speak, we are all interims. One day soon, someone else will take our place and life will go on. Stephen Cole writes of this verse, some awful things can happen when the tenants start acting like landowners. That's what was happening in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the day of Christ. Uh, the tenants, the renters, the religious leaders had taken on themselves more authority than God had granted them. And they started acting like it was all about them. And so uh, they rejected and beat up those that the owner sent, those that told them to repent in other words, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the way down to the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, they didn't want to hear what these prophets had to say. In fact, in Isaiah, we read the people putting their ears, their hands rather to their ears and saying, don't tell us those harsh things. Prophesy to us smooth things. Tell us what we want to hear. And people haven't changed today. People will flock to hear those claiming to speak for God, telling them what they want to hear. Things like God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and never have any pain or trials in your life. From time to time, there would be a short-lived revival in the nation of Israel uh, when there was a good king upon the throne and he would tear down the Baals and the false idols and restore worship to Jehovah. But usually that only lasted a generation or two. Time and time again, they went back to idolatry, faithlessness, injustice was the consistent order of the day. And even when they, at points in their history, gave lip service to God, as they were doing in Jesus' day, their worship was insincere and hypocritical. Jesus says, uh, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And so the ultimate treachery was about to happen. And it was the murder of God's son. And make no mistake, that's exactly what the Pharisees were plotting. This was not a misunderstanding. This was not a political maneuver. This was murder. And if you go back and read what happens, and as we'll approach this in days ahead of the trials of Jesus, of which they were six, they were all illegal. They were conducted under cover of darkness. They allowed witnesses that were not allowed in any court of law at that time. And, and it was a plot. It was a conspiracy. It was nothing short of murder. 
Jesus knew that murder and that treachery was in the hearts of these Pharisees and he's exposing it before it happens. And this leads after his parable to some concluding questions. Look at verse 15. After the son comes in the story and uh, they kill him, they, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember, that's exactly what these Pharisees would do to Jesus. They took him outside the city walls to the hill called Golgotha. He was crucified there. What then, here's his question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now that they've not only beat up three rounds of his servants, they have murdered his son. Jesus asked them, what will the owner, what will God do to them? He answers his own question. He says, he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. That is the strongest negative phrase in the Greek language. Perish the thought. That is, they were shocked by this parable and, and they spontaneously erupted, interrupting Jesus' story. That can never happen. God would never punish his own. But of course he would. We know that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. The city was surrounded by the Roman soldiers and uh, not one stone was left upon another and over a million people were killed just a few decades later. That's not the only question Jesus has for them. Verse 17, but Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now don't forget, Jesus is reminding them that though God is incredibly merciful and long suffering, and he is, the fact that we don't die every time we sin is evidence of that. Don't take that to mean that he is not just, he is. God's justice means that he cannot pretend that sin does not occur. Sometimes we have this grandfatherly picture in our mind of God. You know how grandparents are. Uh, the, the grandchild breaks a vase and we sweep it on the rug and pretend we didn't see it happen. God doesn't do that. He's merciful and long suffering, but ultimately he is just and he must punish all sin. And, and Jesus is reminding them that one day there's a payday coming and it of course would come and that right soon. And so they think that they are falling upon Jesus. That is, he is the prey and they are the predator. But Jesus says that he is actually the cornerstone which the builders have rejected. And Peter picks up on this in one of his epistles. The cornerstone, as you see, the, the metaphor and the imagery has shifted away from agriculture into construction, which was another one of the New Testament's favorite images. And so the cornerstone was the, the perfectly square and level stone that was laid in a building project and all of the angles and the walls were plumbed and squared according to its perfection. And so when Jesus comes, the eternal son of God proclaiming to be the Messiah, sinless in every way, he is rejected by the leaders. We don't want that Messiah. Now remember we said last week it was against a mountain of evidence. It wasn't that God, Jesus had not done enough miracles. It wasn't that there was not 
sufficient evidence in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled every Messianic prophecy perfectly. It was that they willfully, stubbornly refused to bow their knee because they didn't want this kind of Messiah. And so Jesus says they've rejected this stone, but it has become the chief cornerstone. And then he says this, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone, and that is to fall on him, to, to seize him and to put him to death, will be broken into pieces. That is their strategy to get rid of Jesus through the crucifixion ultimately will fail. Even though he literally died, the grave could not hold him. Death could not keep him. And he rose again, more powerful, uh, as powerful as ever, I should say. And he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then he has this, but on whomever it falls, that is this chief cornerstone, it will scatter them like dust. That's a vivid image of this uh, large, heavy cornerstone falling from a high place onto the enemies of God. And they are not only broken, they are dissolved in a moment. That's how powerful our Lord is. And friends, let's not forget this passage and the one we read in Isaiah is a passage about stewardship. The fact that those who speak for God in any epic of history are not the owner. In fact, the scripture says we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And of course, that purchase price is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul, who is one of the great spokesmen for God in the New Testament, wrote much of our New Testament, was describing his own ministry to others. He said, count us in this way as stewards of the mysteries of God. That is, we are managers of what rightly belongs to another. And then he says, and as slaves, we're not the owner. We're the servants in this story. There is a story that emerged from England in the 19th century about a little boy who uh, wanted a boat, a toy boat. And so he didn't have uh, the money at the time to buy one from a toy store. So he gathered the materials. He sanded down the wood. He made the sails out of some burlap that his mother gave him. And he painted it and wrote his name on it. And it was a beautiful little boat. And it was his pride and joy. And one day he was playing with that little boat in a slow moving ditch near his home when a flash flood came and washed his prized possession away all the way down to the sea, and he thought he'd never see it again. And one day, some months later, he was uh, in the downtown area of his village, and he saw in a shopkeeper's window his boat. Now, it was battered and beaten up a little bit, but there was no question it, it was his boat. And so he went into the merchant, and he said, that, that's my boat. And he says, well, no, son, I, I bought this from a traveling salesman. He said, well, I made it. it it's mine. He said, well, you're going to have to buy it. It's a dollar and 20 cents. And so fortunately, the lad by this point had some money and he counted out the money meticulously and he took possession of his boat. And as he walked out, the store owner heard him say to the boat, little boat, you're truly mine. Twice mine. I made you and I bought you. Well, that's exactly what God the Father has done for his children. He created us, but we rebelled against him. And we went our own way, as Isaiah says. And yet he didn't give up on us. He pursued us until he found us. And when he found us, he purchased us 
from the slave market of sin by the blood of his own son. And we are his and will be his forever and ever. And just as that landowner has requirements and accountability for those who he has given blessings, he holds us accountable as Christians today. And one day we'll stand before him to be judged, not for whether or not we'll enter heaven. That's already been decided. We don't have to worry. Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear God's wrath or his fury or hell, but he is going to give out rewards um, based upon our loyalty and fidelity and our diligence in, in serving him. And so all of life then is, is to be viewed as a stewardship. But remember, this is God's story. And we started this story by describing the incredible mercy and long-suffering patience of this landowner who sent slave after slave after slave to collect on the rent and they were turned away and brutally treated. And then ultimately he sent his son. What patience and, and mercy is the Lord's. But he is patient today. We live today, the time of Jesus' ascension back into heaven to his second coming and what many theologians call the age of grace. And there is this opportunity for all who will bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ to receive his forgiveness. And that included those who physically put Jesus to death. Shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, remember he had instructed his disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come in power. And we know recorded in Acts chapter two, that's exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit descended and came as it were as a tongue of fire. This sound of a rushing wind filled the room and and then after the Holy Spirit filled these men, they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and began to preach the gospel. And one of the primary spokesmen was Peter. And his sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 2. And I want to read just a small portion of that. He is preaching to Jewish people, many of whom had been actively involved in Jesus' crucifixion. And this is what he said. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God and with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And there's the accusation. Peter says, you saw the miracles, you saw the signs, you read the Old Testament prophets, you know that he was the Messiah, but rather than bowing your knee to him, you mistreated him, you maligned him, you beat him, and ultimately you nailed him to a cross. Those are harsh words, true words. Peter went on to make arguments that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and then he comes to his summary statement in verse 36, and this is what he says, therefore, that is with this indictment hanging over your head, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now, how do you think they're going to respond to this accusation? Verse 37 tells us, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That is, they were convicted. I take it by the Holy Spirit that what Peter was saying about them was true. 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They knew they were in trouble. They were likely reminded of what Jesus says that if the cornerstone falls on you, you will be scattered like dust. And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. So the Apostle Paul told the Gentiles in the book of Acts that in the time past, God had overlooked these times of ignorance, but today through Jesus, he's calling all men everywhere to repent. Faith and repentance. That's how you appropriate this wonderful gift of a substitutionary atonement. And lest you be confused, Peter is not saying that you have to be baptized as to be saved. He's saying you are baptized for, that is because of the forgiveness of sin that happens through repentance and faith. And, and friends, I, I keep reminding us, we're not any different than those people that lived 2000 years ago. Just as Jesus reminded those Jewish leaders in his parable there in Luke chapter 20, that they weren't any different than their ancestors 800 years earlier, who Isaiah rebuked. You and I are no different today than those people that existed 2000 years ago. Our fundamental need is their fundamental need, which is mercy. That's why I always say to be saved, you have to come to Jesus on his terms, empty hands, outturned pockets. Lord have mercy upon me, the sinner. This is the prayer of humility and contrition that, that God hears and responds to. And so, so what about you? Does the cornerstone hang above your head so that one day when you die, you're going to be crushed under the white hot wrath of God for rejecting his son? Or have you bowed your knee to the son? Have you recognized his authority in your life? Have you run to him and pleaded not for justice, but for mercy? That's the only plea of a guilty soul. Have mercy. Thanks be to God. He's a merciful and a long suffering and a patient God and all who call upon him for mercy shall receive it. It's my hope and prayer that all of you have. If you haven't, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. I plead with you, run to Jesus. Bow on your knees before him. Confess your sins to him. Turn away from those sins and accept his authority over your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, pray, we thank you for your word. Father, it's so clear. You have uh, given so many blessings, so many opportunities to repent. Lord, every time we, we tell a little white lie, you would be just in taking our life. But you're long suffering, you're merciful, you're kind, you're slow to anger. But Father, your grace is not forever. We live in this age of grace, but one day that window of opportunity will be closed tight and it will be everlasting too late. For those who have rejected your son, they will live an eternity full of regret. Father, I don't want that for anyone that I know. And so I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would take this simple proclaimed message of the gospel and use it to convict individuals of personal guilt, 
convince them of the truth that one day they will stand before you and give an account of their lives. Father, convince them that they're guilty and will receive your just punishment. And then, Father, I pray that you would also convince them of the truth of this gospel message, that Jesus died for sinners, that if they will repent and by faith receive this gift, you'll forgive their sins and save them. And Father, we look forward to reports of those that you have saved. And I thank you on behalf of all my brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Keller who are born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. We commit these prayers to you through his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.